Well, one of my groomsmen, Dave Johnson, he moved to Boston, Massachusetts from Colorado. Didn't know anyone in Boston to go to graduate school at Boston University. And he loves to run and he loves making pancakes. So he decided, might as well form a club that loves to run and maybe have pancakes like me. So he posted this on some social media platform, pancakes and running, 8 a.m. Saturday morning. And at first, just a few people showed up. But then as the weeks went on, it became a dozen people, two dozen people, up to 60 to 80 people would come to his house in Boston at 8 a.m. for running and pancakes. The group got so crazy and like interwoven and got to love each other that one day my friend Dave was so sick he had to stay in bed. The group still came, went running, used his kitchen to make pancakes, and then they cleaned it up better than they left it and left while Dave was in bed the whole time. Who knew that a group could bond so quickly together? Well, we live in an age where interest groups and communities can form quickly like this. If you like curling, you can join a curling club. If you're into jiu-jitsu, there's a gym. LGBTQ, there's a community center. If you like biking, you can ride, even in the wintertime, with fat bikes out there almost every day of the week. There are those groups that are out there anytime you want to join them. Is that who we are? Is that who we are as a church? We're just the religious group. We're just the group that likes to get together and talk about God. That is our community. Are we as the church any different from these groups? What makes us unique? Well, I'm going to make a bold statement this morning. And you might not believe me, but hopefully I can convince you this morning or the Word of God can convince you to this morning of this. The church community is unique from all other groups. And I will argue the church is the true source of real community. Let's look, shall we? Let's see what Acts says about this. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. We're going through the book of Acts. And here is God's promise 
that has been, even before the books of, book of Acts, laid out to his people. Even from the time of Abraham, thousands of years before this, God promised Abraham, your people will be more numerous than the stars. Sometimes we can run into this problem as we read the book of Acts. We can think the church began at Pentecost. But the church didn't begin at Pentecost. The church began even in the Old Testament. That God had a plan for his people. A redemption plan even then. In the Old Testament, the plan pointed forward to Christ. In the time of Acts, and here we are in the age of the church, we see that we point backwards to what Christ has done. That's what the apostles are doing. They're proclaiming what Christ did, his death and his resurrection. So the church simply isn't beginning at Pentecost. This is God's people throughout time, the church. So far we've seen in Acts that this is a very active narrative. We've seen Christ's ascension. We've seen the choosing of another apostle. We've seen the coming of the Holy Spirit. We've seen Peter's sermon. And after this passage, we're going to see healings and public persecution against the church. But here, in these six verses, we get a little break, a breath. We see what is happening with the Christian community forming with all of these speeches and miracles going on around them. And so, we see as we go through Acts, there's these times of these breaths, these summary statements of what's happening in the church. This is the first one here in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And I think we need to realize that Acts simply isn't speeches and miracles and big events. It's also the transformation of a people into a profound community. Here is the day in and day out of the church. This is the diet and the exercise of the church right here in Acts 2 through 42 through 47. It might not seem profound. It might not seem amazing. But this is what you need daily for the health of the church. So, they need this. Good diet, good exercise, so that the church will expand to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And today we're going to see what is the diet and exercise, the components of the church. Have you ever had that kind of question that someone asks what exactly do you do at your job? And you feel like you should have a quick answer, but sometimes you don't know what to say. What do I actually do in my job? There's a great article in the Washington Post that was written um, quite a long time ago about uh, a daughter of a president that um, followed her dad, the president, uh, on the daughter-to-daddy workday thing. And uh, she wrote about what her father did at work, the president of the United States. And the article got a, lot of, got a lot of play because basically she said, my dad spends the day talking on the phone and in meetings. That's the job of a president. Phone calls and meetings. Sometimes we might get that question about the church. What exactly do you do as the church? 
We move chairs around. We sing songs. We put money into an offering basket. Is that the church? Obviously, I only work on Sundays. That's what people say to me, right? Is that what I do? And my girls, when I say, Dad, he sends a lot of emails, right? What do we actually do as the church? Well, this is a great passage for that. So people ask, what is the church? Here it is. John Stott has distilled this very well, this passage. And he's put the functions and components of the church into five things. So if you'd like to write things down, you could write this down if you wanted to. Here are the five things. One, teaching. Two, fellowship. Three, service. Four, evangelism. And five, worship. And a church should have all of these five components. You can't simply just have a solid sermon and you don't talk to each other and have fellowship. You can't just simply have rocking worship and you don't do this theology stuff. As a church, you want to have all of these components. That what makes the church the church. And so, hopefully, Emmaus Road, we are working on each one of those. Maybe we do some better than others at times. But all five would be a part of what we are doing in this passage, this is how it lays out, I think, these five components, these five spheres. They devote themselves to two major components. From those two major components, it overflows into two other elements. But all of those four elements are guided by one major principle, the five. Okay? So let's look together, shall we? So this group, remember, there were 3,000 souls that had come to faith, and they had turned from their way of life into faith in Christ. Now where were they spending their energy? What were they actually doing? At seven years old, I really got into baseball, probably because my grandma really liked baseball. And by getting into baseball, something happened. I had this devotion to following it. So my energy and my time and my money was driven towards baseball, specifically 40-cent packets of Topps baseball cards. Not for the gum, but for the cards. And I would organize them into cabinets of different teams, alphabetical order, what player did the best, what my Beckett guide said was the most money for what card. All of that stuff, my time was devoted to these cards. Now they're all in the basement. I don't look at them anymore. But um, it's just amazing what you devote yourself to when you're that young. That is the devotion that's being talked about in verse 42. Devotion is ongoing perseverance into something. So what have these people done? Now they've been turned in faith to Christ. What did they devote themselves to? What well, labels here four things the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. There's much debate whether it's just the teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers fall into fellowship. I'm not going to debate that now, but I'm going to say that the breaking of bread probably is referring to actually eating with, with others, also to communion. And the prayers is a component of fellowship, but also is a component of worship, which we'll get to later. All to say that this, I'm going to concentrate on these two at the beginning. The devotion. One, to the teaching. Two, to the fellowship. In the Greek, uh, didache, the teaching, and the fellowship, koinonia. So, 
In the very beginning, what did they devote themselves to? To the apostles' teaching. See, there is something unique and significant about what the apostles are teaching. And you think, the Spirit has come to them, right? The Holy Spirit dwells within them. They don't need anything outside, you might say. Now they can just live in this spiritual ecstasy. No, that is not the church. It is not an anti-intellectual movement. They are still learning from teachers about specific teaching. They are spending time in devotion on what the apostles are saying, as we see in the New Testament, about Christ, his life, his death and resurrection, and how it fills into the story of God's grand narrative for all people and all of history. That is what they're spending their time thinking on, learning from, these apostles' teaching. So where is apostles' teaching now? Are David and myself, are we apostles? No, we are not. Although we do teach, we teach the word of the apostles. So I could say the apostles' teaching is this. It's the word of God. These are the profound truths that we teach on. So the church is serious about the word, that it has a unique standard, that this is its final authority. It doesn't change with time. It doesn't change with trends. This is something that is true forever. You know, that can sound very archaic and old and stodgy, that we follow this old book, that we follow this standard. That we don't change through time. That sounds like, why would you do that? You change with the times. Why should this be your standard? Why should this be your ultimate authority? You would think that would get boring over time. I find it very interesting as you look at church history. The groups that have died in the church over time were ones that have removed themselves from the authority of the word of God. Even look at that in the Old Testament with Israel and Judah. When Israel lost the law and the word of God, trouble came. We see in 2 Kings, in Judah, what happens? They are separated from the word for hundreds of years, and then Josiah, what does he do? He finds the word of God, it's read, and it revitalizes Judah. In the medieval church, there was an emphasis on sacramentalism rather than the word of God, and it brought much problems to the church in the Middle Ages. With the Puritans, they started to remove themselves from the word of God and got more interested in academia and manifest destiny in moving through America. The mainline church in the 19th century and the 20th century emphasized social activism against the word. How about now and today in evangelicalism where we might emphasize political power over the word of God? What has restored the church over time is the return to the authority of the word of God. That it speaks into a group and it transcends 
their cultural preferences. The Reformation is what changed the sacramentalism of the Middle Ages and grew the church. The Great Awakening of the 19th century and dead Puritanism revived the church in America. Evangelicalism in the 20th century revived the dying church of the mainline church. So through time, when these movements concentrated on the word of God, we saw a revitalization of the church and its community. When the word becomes a place of devotion in the community, it shows our blind spots. It revitalizes the, us to the truth of God instead of our own preferences. And the cycle of organizations, specifically the church through time, many times is this. They get caught up into their own successes, their own projects, their own things, and they lose where their authority came from and what is true. You know, in the 21st century, in the 20th, in, in probably the latter part of the 20th century, this is the movement in churches. Here's a little bit inside baseball for you about church work. There's a lot of talk about mission and vision in churches. We borrow a lot of that from corporate America. We have a mission. We have a vision statement. You all have to do that nowadays if you're starting a church. You have to have a mission statement. You have to have a vision statement. I'm not against mission and vision statements. Those are great. The problem is when those drive the church rather than the word of God. If we start teaching messages based on our own topics or our own personal preferences rather than the word, it will not challenge us and direct us in the way we should go as a community. Hear me. I have a personality, David has a personality, our session has a personality, that affects who we are as a church. We have a location that we live in, in Appleton, a culture that is around us. Those are all factors that make us who we are as a church. But if the word of God is not our ballast and not our foundation, we cannot speak to the culture that is around us. And even more, we cannot be challenged to the culture we create within our own body that sometimes needs to be challenged in how we speak with one another and how we are as the church. When we devote ourselves to the word every Sunday and in our groups, which we try to do here at Emmaus Road, it anchors us to the truth. Not to what's outside in the culture and not to our own culture in the church, in, in our own community, but to what is most important, the Lord. Well, we've seen Didache, the teaching, and now we see koinonia, this fellowship as it's translated. The word fellowship, or koinonia, was used in Greek culture mostly when it came to the mutuality and commonality in marriage. But here it's being used within the commonality in a church. Fellowship many times gives us the idea of stale coffee, right? fellowship break or something like that. It was more than that. It's more than just the passing of peace. It was the idea of having all things in common. This simply isn't just interests or interest groups. They are in with each other's homes. They are sharing meals with each other. They are sharing their lives together. And as you read about what the Romans said about the early church, they were amazed by what these people were doing. 
They were saying, the rich get together with the poor in their homes. Women and men are together as sisters and brothers. Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together. And history writers in the Roman times, they were perplexed by this, frustrated by this at times. And they said these Christians, or what they would call them, this Jewish sect, they don't get together out of obligation or civic duty. They genuinely love one another. This was revolutionary. That people would care for those outside of their tribe, their economics, their gender. That's something that's not very revolutionary for us today. See, we're 2,000 years later. That's just permeated all we are as a culture. That we care for those that are different. That comes from the church. I find it an interesting time to talk about koinonia and fellowship, especially in our time right now in this historic moment. Do we really need each other? Come on, I've got DoorDash, I've got Netflix. I've got my bubble of people I can get together with during the pandemic. Is this separation truly painful? Well, many people will say it's really not for the church. People are saying the church is in serious trouble because many people will not be coming back after this. Many churches are closing its doors. Many churches will maybe be online for, for a long time where people don't fellowship with each other. You might say, well, guess what? The early church, they didn't have COVID. You're right. The early church didn't have plagues that killed less than 1% of the people. They had plagues that killed 10% of the population, 20% of the population, 30% of the population. And do you think they didn't get together? They continued to gather. And you know what they did? They continued to care for each other and love one another. And they even cared for the pagans outside of themselves. It's part of the reason the church grew so much. That during the plagues, they loved and cared for each other and nursed each other back to health. I am perplexed that I still hear from some Christians that Christianity is all about me and God. That's all it's about. It's just me and my relationship with God, nothing more. Have you read the New Testament? That is not what Christianity is. The very nature of God, the very nature of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is relational. The very nature of God. How can we think that Christianity is all about us and God? Me, sorry, me and God. It is about the gathering 
and the fellowship and the koinonia of us together. And those that say, well, I'll just gather in my own little group home or my own house church. No, they gathered in the temple all together. They shared with people that were different than them. They were challenged by groups outside of themselves. People coming into the, their lives. Not just people that I get along with. Statistics have just been coming out about the rioters in January. About who they were and what kind of people they were. And uh, many of uh, secular critics against Christianity have said, this is what Christianity is. These kind of people that are carrying crosses in there, Jesus saves. Those are the people, this is what Christianity is. The people that invaded the capital. But the statistics show that the people that were there, or nationalists, or rioters, that their weekly attendance at church is very low. And many of them don't go to church at all. I'm going to make a social science conclusion, a correlation. You can argue with me if you want this correlation that I'm making, but here I am going to make it for you. There is a direct correlation to those that actually fellowship and gather with each other on a weekly basis at church and their low level of radicalization and their low level of trying to cause division in a culture. Why? Because when you actually fellowship and gather with people that are different economic places you are, races than you are, interests than you are, you learn to learn how to love people different than you, than to be divisive. It makes sense that people that do not gather under the authority of the word of God, under the other people rubbing shoulders and flesh with each other, that they would be rioters and divisive. Because they do not know how to actually love enemy and love those people that are different than themselves. Could the church actually be a balm for our country? That when we actually are with each other, fellowshipping with each other, we can be a place that shows unity and peace in a divisive land. That might be actual community that can be an antidote to our problem in America. Okay, I'm not scolding those who have not come back. You are the chosen people that are here and everyone watching on video, shame on them. Okay, that's not what I'm trying to say, okay? I understand why some people are still away, but I would like to say this. The time is coming where we will only have one service. The time is coming when the video will be off. The vaccine is going to be available to all. A key component of Christianity is koinonia. If you are not having this, your faith is cut off at the knees. Is it really worth staying away from gathering together for that? I long for the day 
that we all come together. That we can fellowship all together. That I can embrace you. We can embrace one another. That we can even give each other a holy kiss, as the scripture says. The day is coming, and I long for it. And I hope we all long for it. Teaching, fellowship. And from this overflows something service. What kind of commonality do these people really have with each other? They just simply see musicals together, they play card games together, they have same book interests. Maybe, but you see, it's more than that. Look with me what the passage says, verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I knew it. I knew the church was just a bunch of commies. I was just waiting for the day that the pastor finally admitted that he's a communist. No! Okay? The church is not doing away with private property. There is not a central body that you come to to give all property and they distribute it. No. The church still had personal property. And the giving was voluntary. So some of you say, oh, phew. No worries. I was worried I was going to have to give up my stuff. Hold on a minute. These people were transformed by the gospel so that they were not thinking of themselves, that they followed a Lord and a Savior that gave his very life and all that he had for them. If he did that for them, then all that they own, everything that they are, is not their own. So therefore, selling things for the help and the benefit of others would just make sense. And that is what's happened in the church. They do not hoard. They serve others. It's strange for us. We've been living in the breath of Christianity and its influence for 2,000 years. We forget that hospitals and social services they were formed by what? The church. St. Elizabeth's. The Salvation Army. Catholic Charities. Historians, anthropologists, sociologists have recently been finding this to be the case and been reporting on this. Tim Keller's done a good job of mining this information. But the question is, where does humanitarianism come from? Did it just come out of thin air? Did the Enlightenment tell us that we should love people that are different than us? No. It came from Christianity. The idea that I should love my enemy because Christ loved me an enemy. The idea that every single pe person has worth and value because they are made in the image of God. That is a Christian worldview. We all live in it now. 
We all understand that now, but it came from somewhere. It didn't just come out of thin air. It didn't come from evolution. It came from a Christian principle. But this is where I think the problem is in our age right now. Christianity has become maybe so successful. It's been so much a part of our worldview. It has been divorced from the very root of the church and from theology. Let me explain this. We can give to goodwill without interaction with the poor. We can send people to hospitals without knowing their problems. I'm not saying that goodwill is a problem. I'm not saying hospitals are a problem. I'm just saying that when we interact with when we are giving to these kind of places, we are separating ourselves from actual problems that people are facing. We're giving them band-aids of social services rather than helping cure the human problem that is in the soul, that the church is a part of that. It's holistic rather than separated. Does that make sense? Teaching, fellowship, service together. You know what would have been the easier thing for us to do? Buy a church outside of town where, you know, there's more population growth, right? And then we can give to people in the city at arm's length. You know, it's messy to walk with others in their generational sin and pain. It is messy to do that. But when we actually rub shoulders with other people that are in pain, when we fellowship with them, when we have them in our church, we start to realize, such am I, or such would I be if it was not for the grace of God, that we start to realize more the power of God in our own lives, we would be in the same place as we interact with others that are dealing with the pain and sin of life because we are all in the same place. It is messy to walk with others in generational sin. You know what's easy to do in our culture? To give money. Do you know what's harder to do? Maybe it's not hard. Maybe for some people it's hard to do to give money. I understand that. But usually for most of us, the harder thing to do is to give our time and our freedom and our emotional energy to those that are hurting. Teaching, fellowship, service. And also we see now something else that overflows from all of this. There is an awe among those that are outside the church. Verse 43, an awe came upon every soul. The word awe is in the Greek is where we get the word phobia. It could be translated fear. I don't think it's translated fear here because it's not that they're afraid of what's going on in the church, but they are just like mesmerized by what's happening. These people are doing amazing things. There must be something at work. God must be working. And because of this, they are having favor with all the people, the churches, people 
saying positive things about the churches, and they're being added to their number. The church is adding people, not just adding in numbers, but people being saved. There is something actually happening that people that are joining. They are repenting and turning in faith to Christ. Yeah, there is these elements of speeches and miracles and there's actions throughout Acts. But more than that, there is this element of a community that is vibrant and aromatic and beautiful that people are drawn to it. Some of us think the only way the culture responds to the church is its persecution towards the church or its hatred towards the church. In this instance, that is not the case. The culture actually had favor about the church and what it was doing. Later on in Acts, we'll see that the culture will persecute the church, but I think Acts is showing us it's not an either-or, persecution or favor. It's a both-and. It might come in different times um, through history, but it is not either-or. Sometimes I think the reason that people hate us as the church or persecute us as the church is not because we're speaking truth. It's just because we're jerks. And we antagonize people. Hear me. We're going to speak the truth as a church. And some people are not going to like it. But we don't have to be jerks about it. See, also, if we take all these five components, teaching and evangelism are not mutually exclusive. This idea, oh, are you a seeker-sensitive church or are you a discipleship church? Those are false dichotomies. A church that evangelizes should also teach well. A church that teaches well should also evangelize. And here, when a church has good fellowship, again, it is a light to the community and it causes people to come in. It's a great evangelism tool. But at the same time, evangelism should spur on our fellowship. That when new and different people come into the life of the church in our midst, we should be praising God and our fellowship becomes even more rich. Teaching, fellowship, service, evangelism, but then there is one element that permeates all of this that is through all of these people in all of these different components. They're breaking bread, which is mentioned twice. Being in the temple in people's homes. They're praising God. Throughout all of this, the church is worshiping the source of all of who they are, the triune God. He has made all these other elements vibrant, successful, and lasting. The worship of the Lord. Dave Johnson, uh, my friend, he moved from Boston to Texas, and the running club did not continue. 
You think the church community right here in Acts, it could have been a flash in the pan. It could easily have been there at one minute and then gone. Especially with the pressures the church is going to face over time. They're going to be called to evangelize Samaritans and Gentiles, people they did not like as Jews. They were going to be persecuted. They were going to have enemies that were against them. They were going to have internal fighting. They were going to face death. How can a community continue to thrive through all of those things that are going to happen? What, they had some dynamic teacher that had great illustrations and videos? They served great coffee during the break? That their church had an amazing budget? That they had lots of people? No. The church had a foundation on a living and true God that dwelt in their hearts and directed them in his sovereign plan that allowed them to be a community that would last. Think about this, please. I'm going to close with this. Think about the greatest community that people in that time knew about, that they thought would never, never fail. The Roman Empire. And it failed. And the church continued. Think of the greatest community or organization that you're a part of. Kimberly Clark. Right? KC's never going to fail, right? It's a Fortune 500 company. Where would, what would I do if I didn't have the KC picnic? But if anyone knows that works for companies, even Fortune 500 companies fail like that. I'm a patriot. I love my nation. I love my flag. Even nations collapse. I'm a social justice warrior that loves to be part of these social justice communities. Let me tell you something. Those communities come and go through history. Those movements end. You know what destroys communities? Competition, enemies, those who are outside. Do you know what the gospel says? Love your enemy. Do you know what destroys communities? Internal squabbles and fighting. Do you know what the gospel says? Forgive those that hurt you and persecute you. Even in the church, those that hurt us, we can forgive them and bear with them. Do you know what destroys communities? Death and time. Over time, they just fall away. Do you know what the gospel says? Our Savior defeated death. And he reigns in heaven at the right hand of the Father, right for us right now. We belong to a unique community. Do you believe that? One that is eternal. One unlike any other community. If you're not there, if you don't believe that, 
I encourage you to join us. Sure, Emmaus Road, but the church at large. Here is a place where we love you unconditionally, not for what you do, because what Jesus did for us. And we can bear with one another knowing that our Savior bore with us. That we can love each other, even our enemies, because he loved us, enemies. Join an everlasting community. Join one that will never fade and will never perish, that not even the gates of hell can prevail against, that one day we will be together in glory and we will see each other for who we were really made to be forever. You know that LGBTQ community? One day it will be gone. You know the United States? One day it will be gone. You know the company you work for? One day it will be gone. Which community are you going to tie yourself to? Which one is the most important? 